Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in a series on the book of Luke, so we'll just jump back into that. And uh, we're, uh, we're working our way through. Every week we do a new chapter, although the last three week, weeks, uh, me and Pastor Ray got stuck in the same chapter, a little mini-series there on Luke chapter 17. It has now been covered very well. Uh, but uh, today we'll move on to Luke chapter 18. And there are 24 chapters in the book of Luke, so now we're on Luke chapter 18. And uh, there was lots in, again, like in all the chapters, there's lots to, to pick out. And, uh, but as I prayed, I, I, uh, I really just felt led to do the, the story about the rich ruler. And so we're going to talk about that. And so I'm just going to read to you verses 18 through 27. And a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the, he, the rich man, said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he, the rich man, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Let's pray, and then we'll work our way through it. Uh, from verse 18 on. Lord Jesus, thank you for the Church Renewal Weekend last weekend. Thank you again for answering our prayers about WestJet and how everybody was able to get here and get home. That was amazing. And we never want to take for granted your answers to prayer. Thank you for the prayer summit. And just it felt like a little bit of heaven having so much of that international flavor. Thank you for all of our volunteers. Thank you for the many uh, pastors now getting mentored, another 80-ish uh, signing up, and almost 600 in total, Lord. It's incredible. And so we just feel blessed to get to be a part of this. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for your word, which is a plumb line of truth and keeps us on a straight and narrow. I pray that our church and, and this church family would never wander away from it in the deception, uh, Lord Jesus, or ignorance. But Lord, that you would bless us this morning. You would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Verse 18. Start at the beginning. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher... What must I do to inherit life? So that's a big question. That's the big question, right? That's, uh, is there a more important question? I don't know if there is. It's got to be one of the most important questions, if not the most important question. And that's what this entire passage is about. The man starts with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus is going to answer that uh, and end with that. And so it's all about eternal life. And of course, Eternal life is not just talking about here, and I, we often say this here at this church, but I think it has to be emphasized over and over again. Uh, when this man asks Jesus about how can I have eternal life, he's not primarily asking how can I live forever, okay? He's not primarily asking about quantity of life. The Jews, uh, of course, it includes that. Yes, it includes living forever. Um, but the Jews had a very developed conception and theology of eternal life, and when they thought of eternal life, it wasn't just about living a long, 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 long time without end. Uh, it was about a quality of life. What it really meant was, how can I gain entry into God's kingdom? 
How can I live in God's kingdom? Now, part of living in God's kingdom is there's no death. But it's a quality of life because living in God's kingdom, when he sets up his kingdom on earth, it's living in this kingdom with no pain and no sorrow and no sadness and no disease and no brokenness. I mean, just to live forever by itself, is that even a good thing? That sounds like more of a curse than a blessing, doesn't it? Like that sounds like, you know, sometimes, you know, when I think of the story of Genesis, uh, you know, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Adam and Eve sin and then God says on that day you will die and people think, why could God be so harsh? And I think, isn't that God's mercy? Can you imagine in a sinful existence having to live forever and ever and ever? I mean, I just think of little things like uh, a lot of you, I'm not one, like, I, I'm one of the lucky ones. I get to do a job I love. I, I love coming to work every day and I, I just love working here and being a part of this. But uh, many of you don't work a job that you love. You may work a job that you, eh, it's not bad. Some of you might like a job that, you know, might work at a job that is kind of e or, or worse. Can you imagine if you had to live forever and go to that job for the rest of forever? Isn't that true? I mean, some of you, even in your marriages. I mean, you said till death do us part and you've been looking forward to it ever since, <laughs> right? Isn't that true? So, um, so eternal life as in living forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, that's in a world like this with brokenness and disease and sadness and relational stuff and depression and anxiety. In a world, in a broken world, living forever is not a good thing. And so when this man is asking about eternal life, again, he's coming from a, a, a Jewish background, and eternal life includes, yes, living forever. There's no death, obviously, because God defeats that. But he's talking about a quality of life in God's kingdom. Living in God's kingdom, when God sets up his kingdom on the earth, where there's no more disease, and no more sadness, and no more sorrow, and no more sin, and no more brokenness, and every moment is this increasing, growing, you know, in, in, in waves and ebbs, this, 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 this experience of incredible joy and love and connection. That's what heaven's going to be like with God. And so he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get into the kingdom of God, to be accepted into that place? And of course, as we've seen, I feel like a broken record because I say it pretty much every week, but as we go through the Gospel of Luke, uh, every week we see people asking, or most many weeks anyway, we see people asking Jesus questions, and he almost never gives the answers that we expect. And of course, he does not disappoint us again here. Verse 19, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so Jesus was never big on flattery, was he? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus just dispenses with the good teacher part, right? Uh, it's so different than we are. I mean, I, we all, most, let's, let's admit, we're human beings. We like flattery. I know that in the Psalms and the Proverbs it speaks against flattery, but you guys can flatter me whenever you like, okay? It just, <laughs> but you know, someone comes to you and they say, whatever, good teacher or whatever it is you do, good baker or good whatever, it makes you feel good. It makes you want to give them an answer that makes them feel good. And this guy comes to you and says, good teacher, and Jesus just cuts right through all that and he says, why do you call me good? And a lot of people have wondered why, like, what is he even meaning here? What is he talking about? What, only God is good. Jesus is just forcing this guy to make a decision about who, who he thinks Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, why are you calling me good? Jesus won't let him think of, Jesus won't let this rich man think of Jesus as just a good teacher. He says, only God is good. So if you're going to call me good, then that means that you're calling me God. And if you're calling me God, you're going to have to do whatever I tell you. So he's just cutting, he's just cutting right through it. He won't let this guy just tell him, flatter him and say, hey, you're a good teacher. He says, only God is good. 
So if you want to stick with that statement, then what you're saying is, I'm God, and if I'm God, then you're going to have to do what I say. And then, of course, starting in verse 20, he's going to answer this man's, he's going to get into answering this man's question about eternal life. But here again, just like in verse 19, his answer is so different. We're going to get there in, in, in just a moment. But even just, I just want to set it up a little bit because it's so important to me. One of the reasons I, I love preaching through the gospel here is so often we Christians, we have these systems, these theological systems, these things we believe, these constructs. And so, and, and what happens is we don't actually read the Bible for what it says. We take our preconceived notions and ideas and theological systems and we read them back into the Bible. And so we just, we have a certain conception of how does a person get eternal life? If someone came up and asked us, how does, you know, if a seeker came up to you, I mean, this is a seeker, right? This rich man is a seeker. And he comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And, and so we just read these stories and we don't actually pay attention to the fact that Jesus gives him an answer that is almost exactly opposite of what most of us would give a seeker. And so I just want us to stop and think about that for a moment before we even look at his answer. If a genuine seeker came to you, someone just showed up, you know, at an airport or, you know, you're, you're in a grocery store or something, and they just showed up and said, what must I do to have eternal life? I mean, first of all, you almost fall over dead. It's like a fish is just jumping in the boat, right? Like, whoa, this is awesome, right? It's not usually that easy. And isn't it true that most of us at that point would talk about things like, okay, well, you just got to believe in Jesus. If you just, just believe in Jesus, he died for your sins, his grace, he forgives you, and then we lead them in a prayer. And now, by the way, I want to be really careful here. I'm not criticizing the truth of any of that. I'm not criticizing the truth of that. All of that is true. I mean, uh, Paul tells us in Romans, uh, salvation comes by faith alone, right? Amen. That is 100. That's, that's the amazing truth of the gospel. We put our faith in Jesus, and he saves us. Okay? And, and can you earn your salvation? Absolutely not. We all know this, okay? Paul teaches it. I'm not against any of that. But what's interesting to me is, when, you know, if someone would come to us, most of us, the vast majority of us, that is the answer we would give. It would stop there. It would be all about grace and forgiveness and faith, and you can't earn it. And what's interesting to me in this passage is Jesus goes straight to the Ten Commandments, which is where most of us would never think to go. And again, my point is not to criticize all the other stuff. That other stuff is in the Bible, so it's, that's the glorious truth of the, of the gospel, and it's so awesome. But my point is, if our salvation message, or if our understanding of the gospel message, completely leaves out what Jesus preached, it means our gospel message is actually missing something. Isn't that true? Because, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was laughing about it this week. I thought to myself, Jesus would fail most of our evangelism classes. And if Jesus would fail our evangelism classes, that's not a criticism of Jesus, is it? Because if there's someone who's an expert in salvation, it's the one who saved us, right? And so Jesus does something that we completely don't expect. Yes, I'm not saying the rest of this isn't true. That's all in the Bible, and that's amazing. That's a glorious truth that we can't earn it. It's forgiveness, it's grace. But Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments. And this is really interesting, because what Jesus is doing is not telling us that we can earn our salvation, but what he is telling us is that giving your life to him does mean submitting to a life of righteousness. And we have divorced those two things. And the result is that many churches now preach a gospel of easy believism. It's easy believism, which is 
that getting saved just means believing some things in your head and then go to church for the rest of your life. That's what, that's what being a Christian is. Just believe some things in your head. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Did you pray a prayer? Yeah, that, then you're a Christian. That's what it means. And we completely miss this part. Jesus says, actually, choosing to follow him is not just, it, yes, put your faith in him. Yes, I'm not taking that out. I'm not putting that down. Absolutely not. Amen to that. But it's not just believing some things in your head. It's choosing to submit yourself to a new kind of life. So you're turning from your old life, and you're now going, you're turning, you're taking on a new life. And, the, and again, the result of this easy believism being preached in churches is you got churches full of very, very shallow Christians, and the moment there's any kind of persecution or hardness or something offends them, they just wash away because they never realized First of all, they never, no one ever told them or brought them to an understanding that the reason I got saved is actually I felt bad about my sins. I felt sorrow. I felt disgust. And I repented and turned away. I, it, it, there's no repentance. There's no coming to an understanding first of what you're being saved from, hell, and horrific sin and bad character and all that sort of stuff. We have no conception of that. We don't even tell them that part. It's just, hey, just believe in Jesus and you get to go to heaven. Well, that sounds pretty neat. Oh, yeah, I'll sign up for that. Do you know that everywhere in the New Testament where the, where the apostles preached the gospel, they never preached just believe in Jesus. They always preached repent and believe. Always. And I'll show you a couple of examples. Acts chapter 3, one of Peter's first messages after Pentecost, and look what he preaches in the temple. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Do you see how these two things, they go together. He doesn't say, just believe in Jesus. Hey, do you believe Jesus is God? You're in. Somebody says. He says, repent and turn back. You were living that way. You were living in self-centeredness and drunkenness and laziness and whatever else S's you were living in, right? And he says, you're not, now you don't, no, 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 no. Now you repent and turn back from that, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And again, the point of this isn't that you have to earn your salvation. The glorious truth of the gospel is that none of us can earn our salvation. Absolutely not. We go to God, Jesus, and he freely forgives us. But it does mean that that free forgiveness comes as we turn from those sins. We don't have to first get rid of them, and we're going to sin many more times. But what we've done is we've turned our back. I hate that kind of life. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. And we're moving into a new kind of life. We repent. How about Paul in Acts chapter 26? I had to quote Paul. Because Paul's the one everybody quotes uh, when they want to preach a message of easy believism. And they go to Paul and they say, it's by faith alone. And it's not by works. And, people, and some people take it to you know, really huge extremes. And it hardly matters what you do anymore because God's grace is just so awesome that your behavior doesn't matter. And then they point out verses in Paul. So I thought it would be good for us to see what Paul preached when he preached salvation. And what's real interesting is that in Acts chapter 26, Acts 26, Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, and then he's going to get sent now to Rome to testify in front of Caesar. Before he gets there, he stands up in front of King Agrippa, and he gives it this fascinating conversation with King Agrippa. And in this conversation, in Acts chapter 26, he actually sums up his preaching message, which I find so, so funny because people quote Paul out of Romans and then preach a different gospel than he preached. In Acts 26... He explains, he, he 
he boils down all of his preaching. He'd been traveling all over the Roman Empire, planting churches and preaching and, and the gospel and sort of stuff. And, and he boils down what his basic message was into two sentences, into just a couple of lines. And I want you to see how Paul, the Apostle Paul, sums up his gospel message, okay? So let's look at this. Acts chapter 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, and now he's going to boil down. What was his message? That they should repent and turn to God. Now look at this. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That is the author of the book of Romans. Faith in Jesus alone, absolutely 100%. And yet, it's not just believing something in your head. Faith in Jesus alone means I put my faith in Jesus and I turn. I repent. I don't live. I don't want to live that. I might still fall. And thank Jesus, he's so generous in his forgiveness. I might fall seven times in a day. And seven, if I go back to him and repent, he will pick me up joyfully and say, it is my joy to forgive you. But I don't just live in those sins. I have turned. I have felt sorrow. I don't want to live that way anymore. I have turned from my sins. I'm taking on a new kind of life. That's salvation. Not just believe and go to church. It's repent and believe. Performing deeds. I want you to see a righteous behavior and action is part of the salvation message. Repentance, righteous behavior, very, very important. And I want to just show you one other passage. I could show you many others. I'm going to go to 2 Peter 1, which is a favorite passage of Pastor Ray's and, and mine as well. It's come up several times in messages over the last year. But I want, to, I want to just point out a couple of things. Because again, part of my reason in doing this is, it's fascinating to me how sincere, well-meaning Christians, pastors and authors and different people, and I, I mean that, many of them very sincere, have taken our faith and actually wandered away. They say it's all about the Bible, but... I don't think Christians read their Bibles very much anymore because they've actually wandered away in their teaching from what the Bible actually says. So I'm just, I just want to take you back into the Word of God because the eternal Word of God is going to give us strength in our spirits. Amen? So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 starts this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What is virtue? What is virtue? Okay? The word virtue there, the Greek word arete, literally means moral excellence. Okay? This is part of Peter's gospel message. Moral excellence. Make every effort to supplement your faith with moral excellence. Moral excellence. Virtue. In your business dealings. Absolute integrity. You gave your word to someone you carry it out. You made a promise in marriage to someone, you carry it out. Moral excellence in the area of sexual integrity, moral purity and excellence. With our mouths, moral excellence. Make every effort to supplement your faith. It's not just believe in Jesus and, you're, it's, and then now go to heaven and that's what the whole message is. Salvation is not just is something in your mind. It is a turning to a new life. It's a taking on of a new life. Now, I want you to notice that other word there, effort. Can anybody tell me what effort means? Hard work. Effort means hard work. And this is another one of those places where, again, sincere, well-meaning Christians 
have totally wandered away from what the Bible actually teaches. And there are, I frequently encounter teaching and believing now where people think that once you come to faith in Jesus, if you just focus on him, the fruit comes effortlessly. What does the word of God say? If anybody ever tells you that the fruit of the Spirit or righteousness are supposed to come effortlessly, you go back to 2 Peter, and there are other places I could show you as well in the Scriptures, and you show them, actually, the Word of God says it's going to be hard work sometimes. You know, I think of one of the things we've really been focusing on the last couple of years here at this church, starting in, you know, towards the end of 2016, we've really honed in and focused in on sexual purity. That's been a big one, and I think of the I think it's got to be several hundred or a few hundred men now have gone through or are going through seven pillars. And, uh, and it's a tremendous amount of work. It's a tremendous amount of work. Depending on which group you're in, it can take six to nine months to complete. Which in a culture where we want to have all of our problems fixed in a five-week seminar is difficult. And there's homework, like five days out of the week. There's stuff you got to journal and there's stuff you got to read. And then you got to come to group. Often they're early in the mornings. There's phone calls you got to make every week for accountability, like I think three or four or something, and there's all this work. And yet, you know, the amazing thing is we're seeing, as the guys who have stuck it out, we're seeing some incredible testimonies of freedom, because it's work. But you know what? Some people look at something like that and they go, who has time to do that? Who, who has time to do that? I don't, I don't have time to do that. I, I don't have, that's just too much work. I can't read, I don't have to journal and phoning people. It's too much, right? It's too much. You know, Peter said, part of salvation is if you have a sex addiction, make every effort. If you think you're going to stand in front of Jesus someday and say, you know what, I didn't work on that character thing because uh, I just didn't have time. It was a lot of work. Nobody's going to have the courage to look Jesus in the eyes and tell him that. Make every effort. You know what, there's another teaching. And again, I just, well-meaning, sincere people, I really mean this, people who in many cases actually love Jesus. But the doctrine has wandered away from what the Bible actually says into all kinds of excess and error. And people will take something that has a seed of truth and then they'll make a teaching on it. And because it has a seed of truth, people go, well, it must be true. When it, when it doesn't match up with reality or the scriptures. And one of them is, you have people, there's a whole string of teaching, I've heard lots of this, there's this whole string of teaching that says, if you want to stop sinning, the whole thing you got to do is just focus on your identity in Christ. Just folk. Now, first of all, can I just say this? Oh, identity in Christ, amazing. To, to focus on the fact that Jesus, that we're his kids, that's amazing. To focus on the fact that he's forgiven us, oh, we, we need to get those truths more in us, amen? I love that. But I want you to notice something here. Peter does not say here, for this very reason, focus on your identity in Christ, and then virtue will appear in your life. In fact, did you know that nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to focus on your identity in Christ and then your sins will fall away? Know your identity in Christ. Yes, it's a joy to know who we are in Jesus. Amen, it's a joy. Receive his love. Receive his grace. But there's a war out there and God's not going to hand it all to you on a platter because he wants to see how serious you are. Salvation is not just believing something in your head. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, moral excellence. When you gave your life to Jesus, you didn't just sign up to believe some things in your head. You signed up for two things together. I am putting my faith in Jesus, and I am turning from my sins. And I'm putting my shoulder to the plow. I'm going to war against the impurity 
and the lack of integrity and those sinful things that are in my life. So back to 2 Peter verse 1. So make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Did you know that if you're a believer, we're supposed to be growing in self-control? In fact, that's the only kind of control that's allowed to a believer. Now, we often want to exert all kinds of other kinds of control. Isn't it true? We want to control the people we're married to, the people who are our kids. We want to control all kinds. We want to control circumstances. There's only one kind of control that's okay in the Scriptures, and that's self-control. We're actually supposed to fight for self-control. Media intake, right? How we spend our time, how, what comes out of our mouth, right? We're supposed to have self-control. We're not going to be perfect. That's the thing. Again, I want to just keep in this message to tell you seven times a day, eight times a day, hundred times. You can, when you sin, you can go to Jesus and he forgives. But we are supposed to be growing in self-control. We're supposed to be fighting for it. And self-control, we go on to the next part, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We are supposed to be fighting for these things in our lives. They don't just happen. They don't just happen to us as we believe right things. We have to fight for them. I've grown so much. And love is a practical thing, kindness and grace. LaDonna and I have grown so much in love, in what it actually means to love, starting with our children and each other and other people, what it actually means to love has been, as I've talked about before, through doing this parenting course over the last couple of years and learning lots of the, of the science and the techniques of what does it mean to actually love somebody. It's something you actually have to practice. It takes effort. That's why we lead a cell group, because that's how we grow. We learn things together and we practice them. But now I want you to see this next part. It's so important. Why? Why does God want us to work on this stuff and make every effort? Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now look at this next one. Verse 10. And I really want you, again, we read our Bibles with our theological systems, and my goal is to tear down the theological systems and just let the Bible speak to us. Now look at verse 10, and I want you to just let the truth of this hit you. Very few people have ever talked about this or heard something like this in a church, and yet it's right in the Bible. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. What does that mean? Have you ever stopped to think? What does that mean? When does that ever get preached in churches? Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We're supposed to be diligent. So that, be all the more diligent. So that is something I'm choosing to do. That is something I'm striving for. Is that we are to strive, we are to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. Now what does that mean to confirm my calling and election? You know what that is? To confirm your salvation. That's what calling and election is. You say, I've never heard that preached. In fact, I've heard the opposite preached. We are to be diligent to confirm our salvation. Now, what has this whole passage been talking about? How do you have your salvation confirmed? I'll tell you how. How do you know you're saved if your life has not changed one iota and you've just embraced your sins unrepentantly, but hey, you go to church and believe in your head that Jesus is, is, is Lord? How do you have any assurance of your salvation in that case? Peter says one of the key ways you know if you're saved not, is not perfection. I want to just put that out there. I want to keep hammering that. It's not about perfection. No one will ever be close to perfect. And Jesus in his grace does not even expect you to be perfect. He wants to forgive you. And he loves to forgive you. So just because you sin and struggle with sin does not mean, oh no, I've lost my salvation. But 
in the striving, this whole passage has been make every effort. I have turned from my sins. I don't, I repent over them. I hate them. Yes, I'm, I'm still stuck in a sexual addiction, but I'm in a group. I'm getting counseling. I've got accountability partners. I've got, I am working at it. I don't just accept it. I'm going for it. I'm going for it. I've got anger troubles, but I'm not just blowing up at my kids every day and not doing anything about it. I'm getting help. I'm seeing Tim. Once a day, I'm seeing him. Pastor Tim. Not Pastor Chris. Don't even email me about that. You just go straight to Pastor Tim. 24-7, okay? 24-7. But I'm, I'm getting help. I'm getting help. In this way, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling election. For, look at this. If you believe the right things, you will never fall. That's not what it says. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. When you got saved, you didn't just get saved to believe something. You got saved to live for Jesus. To turn from your ways and be different. Not perfect? No way. None of us is. Needing lots of forgiveness? Yes. Look at this last verse. And again, if you don't, again, some of you might be thinking, I don't like, we'll just wait, we'll get to some other stuff yet. It'll get a little bit worse and then it'll get better. <laughs> but I just want you to see, I'm just reading you the Bible. And that's my whole goal in this. This is why we work our way through books of the Bible and why we read tons of scripture, whether it's me or, or Pastor Ray or Stefan or Chris Piotr, we, we, we just put tons of scripture up there. I just want to go back and see what the Bible says. And look what the next verse says here in this passage. For in this way, For in this way, this whole thing we've been reading about, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, we start with a question in the Gospels, Luke 18, what can I do for eternal life? Peter's talking about that again here. And my point again isn't that it's by works. It is not about works. Nobody can earn their way into the kingdom. But the message of righteousness is married to the message of grace. I repent and I believe. I believe and I turn. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. We have got to, not only does this have to impact the way we live our Christian lives, it has to impact the way we evangelize. Evangelism is not just about getting people to to pray a prayer. And we're going to see now when we go back to Jesus, that is not at all what he does with this seeker. It's not just about make Christianity seem as easy and happy as possible and then get people to pray the prayer and look at how many people you led to Christ. Some of those people never got saved because they never heard the other part of the salvation message which is you've got to turn and repent. So we go back to Jesus and this, and this seeker, this genuine seeker says, what must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus tells them something that most of us would never think to have in a salvation message and he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. That is commandments five through nine of the, of the ten commandments. That's five commandments. Number five, number six, number seven, number eight, and number nine. Okay? He left out number ten, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. Okay? Just to whet your appetite. Okay? You know the commandments, and he says that to him, right? Now look what the rich man replies. Verse 21. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, I have to correct some misconceptions about this verse. And again, I'm not, you know, 
I've got, I, no doubt I've gotten this verse wrong. Lots of people have gotten this verse wrong, but you learn as you read and you study and you, you learn things over time and stuff. But one of the things I, I don't like is the exaggerated Christian views about Jewish beliefs. And churches all over in books, it gets taught very exaggerated views about, about Jewish beliefs in the time of Jesus. And so a lot of people look at this and they go, what a proud man. Like, talk about arrogance, all these I have kept from my youth. Because we're very steeped in our Western evangelicalism that nobody's perfect, nobody could ever say something like that. And even if we are proud, we're proud enough to know not to say certain things to reveal our pride. So how on earth could this guy even dare to say out loud all these I've kept from my youth? Like, those Jewish people, and the reason is because we have this very exaggerated, very shallow understanding of what Jews believed. And we have this idea that the Jews thought they could earn their salvation with God by being perfect. Did you know that it is utterly false? The Jews had a very developed theology of needing grace and forgiveness because it was in the Old Testament. King David said in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. All over the Psalms, David talks about the need for forgiveness. The prophets, Isaiah and the other prophets, talk about how we have all sinned. When Paul says, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans, he's quoting Isaiah. So the prophets spoke of the need. The, the Jews knew from their scriptures that it was impossible to be perfect. And that's why they had the whole sacrificial system. I mean, in Jesus' very day, they were sacrificing thousands upon thousands of animals in the temple every year because, for atonement for sin. Their whole system was, the temple and the sacrifice was based on this fact that they knew they needed forgiveness from God. Now, yes, pride had crept into some of the Pharisee sects, but it, it's not as easy as saying they didn't think they needed forgiveness. It was, they had pride in other areas. They knew that God had to forgive sin, and they knew nobody was perfect. So this rich man is not, don't read this as this arrogant guy, oh, I've done all this, he's not saying I've never fallen. He knows he's messed up, Okay? What he's saying is, I've been following God all my life, and these are the things. This is the life I'm committed to. You know, do not commit adultery. He's saying, I, I haven't. I've been faithful to my wife. By the way, so have I. Okay? That's not proud to say that, although I am glad to say that. Okay? He's like, I, I've been faithful to my wife. Okay? Uh, he says, I've not, I've not borne false witness. I've not stolen. This would have been a good guy to do business with. He was big on integrity. I hope most of you are. Actually, my hope would be that all of you are that. I do big, good business. I don't lie about people. He's a genuine seeker. I've been seeking God. And this is, what, this is the life I've signed up for. This is what I want to live. Okay? That's what he says. Okay? And yet he knows something is missing, and that's why he's asking Jesus about eternal life. And again, I want to come back to this issue now. What would we do if a genuine seeker like this came to us? Oh, he's perfect. He wants to do right. He wants to follow God. He wants to have a, like, he just, he just pray the prayer and let him in the kingdom, right? And Jesus does the exact opposite. He just raises the bar so high that the guy doesn't want to come in. So Jesus quotes to him five commandments, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. You know, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not murder, uh, you know, honor your father and mother. But he has left out 
commandment number 10. And what is commandment number 10? Well, let's read verse 23 here. When Jesus, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. One commandment's been left out. Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You know what commandment number 10 is? Don't covet. Jesus left out the first one, left out the last one. He got him on a, on a five, and the guy said, I'm, I'm totally in, Lord. Oh, you, you, you want to be master. In order for you to be a follower of Jesus, you got to make Jesus master of all of your life. He says, I'm, you can be master of my sexual purity. Yes, I'll be faithful to my wife. You can be master of my integrity. Absolutely, I won't lie or steal. You can be master of my family. I'll honor my father and mother. I won't murder. You can be master of all this. And Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus takes the bar, a guy who's just a perfect candidate to get saved and makes it. I mean, Jesus, you are shrinking your church. Why would you say something so insane? You're shrinking it. I mean, this guy's going to come to church every week. He's going to serve. I mean, he's just in. He wants eternal life. And you just, you just made it so hard that there's no way he's going to come in. You just shrunk your church. I mean, no wonder when Jesus died after three and a half years of ministry, he had, you know, 12 apostles. And he had some women following him and maybe some others. But the church was not big at that point, was it? And again, I want us to just sit here for just a moment because... It is so important because there is a whole segment of our Christian culture that does things exactly opposite of this. And again, many of them are well-meaning people, but in their well-meaningness, I don't want us to be deceived and led astray as well. But there is a whole segment of our Christian culture. The whole goal is make Christianity as attractive and easy as possible so that as many people will come in as possible. You know, and sometimes it's called seeker-sensitive. Not that all seeker-sensitive churches are like that or that they, whatever, it's not a crit, but sometimes it's called that. It's, it's all about not necessarily seeing, majoring on what's in here, but majoring on what will be attractive. To, and I'm, I actually heard, and again, I'm, I'm not going to mention his name, and I really believe he's sincere. I actually believe he's sincere. I think he, he loves Jesus in the best way he knows. But I heard a, a, a leader just a couple weeks ago of a major, major ministry in the States the big, big ministry. He actually got up and preached a message. I listened to a whole big chunk of it. And he told his congregation, he said, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our Christianity. And my jaw just about dropped. Like, this is an evangelical leader. We're not talking about someone. We're talking about someone, like, right in the fold. We need to unhitch the Old Testament from our Christianity. And you want to know what his reason is? Because it offends so many people. And they won't get saved. And I thought to myself, anybody who is so offended with the Old Testament that they won't give their life to Jesus, isn't ready to get saved. Because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And salvation isn't just something you believe in your head. It's giving your life to Jesus. He has to be your king. So we got people in churches that signed up for an easy belief. Some of them maybe not even Christians because they never realized the second part of the equation is Jesus won't be your savior unless he's also your king. It's a two-package deal. You get Jesus to be your savior when you put him in charge of your life. Turn from your sins, repent, and live for him. And follow him. So, but what I want you to notice is these people think they're doing Jesus a service when they're doing the exact opposite thing Jesus did. They think they're doing Jesus a service by putting the bar as low as they can so as many people as possible can hop over. 
Jesus did the opposite. He said, the only people who are going to be in my kingdom are the, it's a kingdom. The only people who are going to be in my kingdom are the ones who acknowledge me to be king. So he raises the bar up here and says, it's so awesome. He loves this man. In fact, I believe, and there's no way to prove this from scripture. I really believe, I believe this man has a good heart. And I believe at some point, and again, I can't prove it. It's just a personal belief. I'm not preaching this, but I believe this rich man, this rich ruler came around at some point later in his life. Because I just know if it had been me that Jesus put that calling on, I probably would have walked away sad first. It's pretty hard in one moment just to say, okay, yes, I'll sell everything I have. And he probably went away sad, but this guy was a true seeker. I think the Holy Spirit was working in his life. I don't think, and Jesus doesn't give up on us. I, I feel like he's going to be in heaven someday. We're going to find out at some point later down the road, he came back and said, this is the only way I can live. Is I gotta, I, I'm following, right? But to put the bar so low that everybody comes in, Jesus says, you've given me this, 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 and this, but if you want to make me king, I've got to be king of everything. And that includes your money and your possessions. Sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, and come follow me. And a man turns away from salvation based on that. Right? Look at this. Uh, Next verse there. I'm getting all lost here. Savior. Multiple pages over here. I've been freaking out the worship team this whole weekend. They are behind. I heard someone running. Yesterday I was praying and I could hear them running through the back there to get to the piano. But look at this. So Jesus says, I mean, we would have said, just come to church. You already believe it. Look what Jesus, look what happens now. This guy actually, tur- Jesus turns him away over this issue just because he won't sell everything. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus does not say, ah, you're close enough. You're a genuine seeker. You believe the right things. You're close enough. He actually turns them away over this issue of lordship. That's pretty serious. Now, time over for just a moment. Some of you are going, whoa. In order to be saved, I have to give away everything I have. No. This is not a general command. Jesus was calling this man into full-time ministry. He says, sell everything and come follow me. He was calling him to go on the road, full-time ministry with him and the disciples, preaching and teaching and doing ministry. This guy had a ministry calling on his life. He says, I'm not going to make you Lord that way. I'm not going to follow you that way. Jesus says, and you can't follow me. Most of us are not called. I mean, I've been called into full-time ministry, but most people aren't called into full-time ministry. Most people are called to serve from where they are. All of us are called to submit our money and possessions to Jesus. But for most of us, that doesn't mean actually physically selling them all to have nothing. For most of us, that means using everything we have for Jesus. It means using your house for Jesus. It means using your business for Jesus. It means, and then there's such helpful disciplines to help you do that. I mean, one of them is living within your means. I've talked to so many people. I've heard testimony after testimony in the last couple of months of people downsizing homes, doing various things in order to live within their means here at this church so they can be more generous, that they can have less stress. That's part of what it means. You know, one of the, one of the best disciplines for that is, is tithing. I've, my parents taught me that growing up. And it's, it's, I'm not preaching it as law that you have to do it. It's one of the best disciplines. I don't know how you can say your money belongs to Jesus if you don't have some kind of discipline every paycheck that the first of what I get, the first 10% goes to God. It's a brilliant discipline. It's a brilliant reminder. 
So there's these little things we can do. It doesn't mean necessarily we give all of it away, but we use it all for Jesus and say, you are in command of my money. Jesus said, if I'm not in charge of your money to this guy, then you're not in until you're ready to submit because salvation is submitting. But you know, for some of us, actually the money issue is easy. Some of us, uh, you know, money's not actually a big deal to us and we love to be generous and we love to give and, and, uh, and it's no worries. You know, I think the conversation would go different if Jesus, if it would have been any of us in this passage missing us, I think Jesus would have gone for that one thing that we don't want to give him lordship over. So with this man, he, he went there to the money. But with some of us, Jesus might say, we might go to him and say, what must I do for eternal life? And he might say, have you given, you know, don't covet, and, you know, don't commit adultery. And we might say, oh, all these things I've done. My money, I've got an open hand. You know, I've fought for sexual purity and I'm, I'm living in sexual purity. All these I've done. And then he might say, one thing you still lack. You still hold bitterness against so-and-so. No, come on. I believe all the right things. I believe you're God. I believe you rose from the dead. One thing you still lack, you hold bitterness against somebody else and you just refuse to give it up. And then we go away sad. I don't know if I can let go of that. And Jesus says, would say how hard it is for those with bitterness to enter into the kingdom of God. Or Jesus might say to you, you know, do not covet and do not murder and some of those ones, and you might go, oh, all these I've kept. And he might say, one thing you still lack. He says, you still have not dealt with that unconfessed sin or that sexual impurity in your life. Yeah, but I'm, I'm too busy. It's, it's too much work. It takes months and months and months. And if I brought that unconfessed sin out, it could really affect me. It could affect me in my job. It could affect my reputation. It could affect all sorts of things. And then Jesus might say, how hard it is for those steeped in sexual impurity to enter into the kingdom of God. How hard it is to enter into the kingdom of God. Now some of you might be sitting there going, oh, I don't like this message. In fact, this makes it seem just about impossible to get saved. Does any of you feel that right now? It just seems just about impossible to get saved. Do you know that's what the disciples said in this passage too? That's what the disciples said next verse. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Now, we're coming to the close here, but a little time out. It's interesting to me that in much of the gospel preaching today, everybody goes how easy it is to be saved. Who wouldn't want to be saved? Look at all the benefits and there's no cost. When Jesus preached the gospel message, they said, then who can be saved? It's a little bit different, isn't it? Then who can be saved? Let's end on a good note. Jesus has some encouragement. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Aren't you glad for that? What is impossible with man is possible with God. Don't despair. My point here today isn't that we're all going to hell. That is most certainly not true. Jesus has so much grace. He has so much grace. And he knows that in one moment, no one, that's why I really believe this guy will have come around in the end, because I really believe this guy was a true seeker. No one can give their entire life, every last bit of it, to Jesus in one moment. 
In one moment or different moments, we decide that's what we want to do. So in one moment, I say, I repent. I don't want that life. And we turn to him. And Jesus says, now we've got a lifetime to work. And so we follow him and we repent. And then he points out an area of our life. Actually, uh, I'm not the boss of that area. Oh, and at first it's painful. But he won't ask you to do anything. He won't be with you and help you to do. Amen? What is impossible with man is possible with God. And he loves you. What he does want from you, you say, well, what does Jesus want from me then today? I'll tell you what he wants is just a yes that that's what you want. That you didn't sign up for easy believism. You signed up for a life of submission to his lordship. You won't be perfect in that. You'll have many ups and downs. He will happily forgive you. But he's not a mean God. By the way, him wanting to be boss. Oh, he just wants to be boss in my life. He wants to be boss. The whole point of this question was, what must I do to enter eternal life? And eternal life is not just quantity of life, it's quality. Do you want the joy of the Holy Spirit flowing in your soul? Do you want that connection with Jesus, that, that love and that grace with his sweet presence in your life? That is heaven, that's eternal life. And that's what happens the more you give him lordship of your life. The more you give him areas of your life, the more you hold areas to yourself, those areas are only death. And you hold on to them and you find it doesn't give me any joy. And for some reason, it's still hard for us to give them up. So Jesus gently calls and he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I'm going to help you, but you got to say yes. You got to say yes. Salvation is not just believing, it's giving to him. So let's finish this message. What is Jesus asking you today to say yes to him for? And maybe you want to just bow your heads and maybe let's just Reflect a little bit and listen. What is Jesus asking you? What area of your life are you struggling to give to Jesus? Let's just close our eyes and just have a moment of reflection and listening. Maybe it's an area of unconfessed hidden sin. As I said to you before, you've been holding on to it and you're just so afraid to bring it out. You're just so afraid. It will have power over you as long as it stays hidden. Jesus says, let me shine my light in there. Let me be Lord of that hidden sin. Let me open up that door, bring out the shame. Maybe it's time, maybe you need to just make a decision today, I'm gonna to talk to a pastor, I'm gonna to talk to my cell leader, but I'm gonna confess something I've never confessed before, I'm gonna bring it out in the open. Maybe it's, maybe it's the area of sexual purity. You need to phone up pastor, you need to get in a group, you need to talk to your cell leader, whatever it is, you need to get in a group, you need to get accountability, but you need to start walking out. That's what salvation is. It's not, salvation is not you just living in that stuff. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Pastor Ray preached an awesome message about forgiveness last week. Super practical. Salvation means that's not an optional message. Jesus wants to be Lord over that area of bitterness in your life. He says, you got to obey me. It's time to work on that. It's time to get help. It could be your money. And you know Jesus has been nagging you. You know what? All that stress in your life is because you're living above your means. All that stress in your life is because you own your money. Time to start a discipline like tithing and living within your means to show God that all of it belongs to him and so much joy comes of that. Lord Jesus, minister to our hearts here today. When we put you in charge, oh, the joy that comes, the eternal life that comes. Some of us, it's going to take courage. Like this rich man didn't have the courage in a moment to say yes to you. I, I hope and think 
and pray that maybe he did, in the end, say yes to you. But that day he didn't have the courage. I pray everyone here today, where you've brought something to their minds, is going to have the courage to say yes to you and obey. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.